0: Our sweet and our holy God, we stand in this room today in honor, in honor of you and your word, where we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hungry hearts. We ask you today, Lord, to give us hearts that are tender, tender to receive your word like a seed planted in fertile soil. God, we ask you to give us feet that will walk quickly to do your will. We ask you to give us ears that hear and hands that are strong for service. Lord, we pray that a word of life, testimony, salvation, hope would be found on our tongues. God, our God, this is our prayer. In the name of the strong name of the Trinity. And we pray together in this room saying, Amen and Amen. Friends, please be seated. Years ago, Kurt Vonnegut wrote, Another flaw in the human character is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. Oh, Kurt Vonnegut could write a sentence. I think about that line quite often, because I think it's true. When you look around at other people's lives, that's easier to do sometimes than to look at your own life, but when you look at your own life or other people's lives, you begin to realize that people are just sort of prone to not want to do maintenance and are itchy to build. When things get a little hard, they move on from one project to a shiny new project. They go through relationships quickly. People, work, becomes disposable. Very, very temporary. We look at our own house and we think, you know what? I really ought to move across town. I don't want to tackle that garage one more springtime. I don't want to tackle that yard one more time. I don't want to paint this house again. I've had this house painted four times. I don't want to have to put a new roof on this house. I want a new roof with a new house. You start praying for hailstorms. storms. You don't want anybody to get hurt. You just want a new roof that so you don't have to do anything with it. Maintenance. Not much fun. New things. Shiny like kids at Christmas, or like our Labrador retriever in the backyard, squirrel. (laughs) Something new to build, something new to build. But maintenance, just good old-fashioned maintenance. Should I have to apply the concepts of maintenance to my marriage, to my faith, to my vocation, to my friendships? Should I have to do maintenance in every last part of my life? Hang on. Lean in. Yes. Yes, you do. Today, as I begin a new series of messages for the month of May called Doing Maintenance, I want us to begin in the beginning. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'll go all the way back to those those wonderful early stories. Because in them, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's a picture. There's a picture of God's abundance. There's a picture of our frailty. There's a picture of faithfulness and possibility. There's a picture of brokenness. There's a picture of life and life with God. And you also see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 something of our deepest longings placed in us by God and our deepest hopes and possibly even our future. Years ago, J.R.R. Tolkien, some of you know him from The Lord of the Rings and his friendship with C.S. Lewis and others. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, We all long for Eden. And we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. Its gentlest and most human is still soaked with this sense of exile. Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation is God's story of life as he would have it. I encourage you to go home and read both of these creation narratives this afternoon. This morning, I just want to pick out a few things to highlight, and we'll use it to build the rest of this message series in the, in the month of May. Uh, but Genesis 1 and 2, it's a picture of, of how God would have life ordered with us and how he would have us experience him and one another and the world that, that is his that he's given to us as a gift to, to steward and, and to be responsible for. It's a picture of harmony and wholeness. The Jewish word of shalom, of, of, of all as right. It's a picture of, of how God would have us experience the world. It's important for us as disciples of Jesus to have this picture in our mind because everywhere we go, there's some carnival barker trying to convince us this is how life should be lived. And if we don't Stop and get the picture in our mind. Then we are susceptible to those siren songs and we're, we're pulled in 17,000 different directions until there's nothing left of us. If we're going to commit ourselves to maintaining something good that God has given us, we have to have a picture A picture of of how God would have it, a a blueprint, if you will, of what harmonious life with him and others looks like. In Genesis 1 and 2, there is a picture uh, of a beautiful and a a strong faith. It, It said that they walked with God in the cool of the day. Beautiful poetry. If you can't read poems, you shouldn't read Genesis 1 and 2. If you've forgotten how to read poetry... Go back and learn that and then come back to these stories because there's so many pregnant images in here. They walked with God, it said, in the cool of the day. That means that, that, that moment of the day where you're unhurried, that moment of the day where you're, where you're full of, of wholesome satisfaction, that moment of the day where, where you just breathe in the fact that you're a human being. And not simply a human doer. That cool, breezy part of the day. I'll, I'll never forget years ago, I, I, I led a group of, of students to Jamaica to build cisterns up in the mountains of Jamaica. And those beautiful Jamaicans, they had a great saying. They would say, I'm just cooling in the breeze, man. I'd say, how you doing? And if things were going well, they'd say, oh, man, I'm just cooling in the breeze. You had a picture of Genesis 1 and 2 of people just cooling in the breeze with God, man experiencing a relationship with God that was real that it was alive that it was intimate that it was true you say is a relationship like with God possible it's the first picture of what a relationship with God is like and it's the last in the bible it's a picture of a faith that is is given back to us that we are are called to maintain. There's a picture here of of, of how we're to live with friends and family in in harmony with one another, sharing life together, not one up here and one down there, but walking together and sharing responsibility. There's a picture here of harmony of human relationships. We live in a world that's, that's governed, By competition, and everyone we meet, even those we love the most, are our competitors, our siblings, our spouses. They're our competitors, and and our our primary relationship is to win. And in Genesis 1 and 2, the primary picture, that, that, that picture of creational intent was one of shared life, mutuality, and joy. Family. There's a picture in Genesis 1 and 2 uh, about our financial life, about, about our, our vocational life, about our work. Sometimes people will say, Well, well, if, if there hadn't been all that sin in there early on in human history, then we wouldn't have to work at all. They all just come to us. Work's a curse. That's, that's, a, very, that's a very shallow and choppy reading of this story. Before there was any notion of brokenness and sin... There was a beautiful picture of the vocational life as they were tilling, naming animals. They were gardeners and zoologists. Do you remember that old Bob Dylan song, Man Gave Named All the Animals? And you don't, go listen to it later. You know, don't listen to it now. I've noticed that people start looking up things immediately during the sermon. Don't do it now, it'll disrupt your neighbors. But they had meaningful work to do and it gave them life. And were, this was a gift from the Creator. So is our, is our work life supposed to give us life and, and, and supposed to, 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 to create something, supposed, something creative and something beautiful, something that we can do in concert with God? Yes. Can it be that way? Yes. What has it become? It's become some kind of Sisyphean experience where we just want to push that boulder up the hill until we can retire. And then we retire and look around and die. That's not how God intended it to be. You have these pictures, and these pictures need to be in our minds, and they need to be in our, in our hearts. There's a picture of God's relationship and our relationship to fun, pure fun, and friendship, and joy, and fitness. There, there's a picture right here in Genesis about, look, look at this, look at this in chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight. In this story, God gave some trees that were just pretty to look at. No function beyond the beauty. Couldn't build with them, you couldn't eat them. I had a neighbor, we, we bought a house in Pearl, Mississippi. Most people lived in little, bitty, tiny trailers. We got a house. This moved in in the 1930s right there on the street. Trailers were close by. But we had this little house in Pearl, Mississippi. And it had a magnolia tree in the yard. And it was beautiful. And it smelled great. And it was a total, colossal pain. Because it dropped leaves everywhere. And our next door neighbors loved that tree because they could see it and they could smell it and they didn't have to tend it. And one day the neighbor came across early, early day and she said, she said, I- I'm so glad you haven't cut down that magnolia tree. I said, why on earth would I cut down a magnolia tree? She said, my husband said, you'll find out. <laughs> she said, but I'm glad because it's so beautiful and it makes me so happy. I'm glad you're leaving it there. And in this story, there were were some trees. They were just beautiful. Why? Why? If God was just some sort of utilitarian concept, there'd be no magnolia trees. Because God ordained life for beauty and for joy and for fun. And when we get that, when we get the pureness of it and the graciousness of it, then we protect it and we maintain it. We have to have in our hearts as followers of Jesus a picture of life as God would have it. And he's given that to us. And we also have to have a real sober understanding of what's happened and what's gone wrong and what continues to go wrong over and over and over and over again. And we're given that understanding in the third chapter of Genesis. In chapter 1 and 2 we have this picture of God's bountiful creation. God's gift and this joy of experience. We're given this picture of God's provision. And God's prohibition. He said to the early family. He said, you can eat of All of this, look around. Everything, all of this, you can eat except for that one. That one over there, leave that one alone. But everything else is yours to enjoy, to enjoy freely. God gave them a choice, He gave them an opportunity. He provided for them and He provided for them bountifully. And He gave them His rule. He said, that one, that one do not touch. Perhaps you've heard the story. Serpent came, began to talk. That kind of freaked me out. How about you? You had to talk? Oh, no, no, no. You see, you really can't trust this creator. He's scared of you. You can't trust him, so you should become secure. Go ahead and jump over this fence and grab this. And in your autonomy, in your own strength, you will have enough to live without him. Lo and behold, they're now naked. For the first time, they understand they're naked. You remember Louis Grizzard used to talk about the difference between naked and naked? They were naked. They understood that. And they're they're hiding, they're running, they're and here is God, here is God in that cool in the breeze time of day. Boom. It's how the story goes. And it's an amazing story. Where are you and what have you done? Into the story is a sad, sad chapter. And that sad chapter is relived in our lives again and again. The chapter goes that in the face of God, who is bountiful and good and merciful and kind, we assert our own autonomy. We assert our own autonomy out of fear, out of a lust for security. Because all He provided, we come to believe, is not enough. We go from receiving with gratitude and joy to grabbing with anxiety and fear. We go from dwelling and walking and living to building walls to keep us safe. This past year, Jim Harrison died. Jim Harrison Famous for many novellas. One gave birth to the film The Legends of the Fall. Some of you enjoy that film. He wrote a little story called The River Swimmer. It was about this poor kid in the uh, upper peninsula in Michigan. Named Thad who was a fantastic swimmer. One day uh, the, the father who was a wealthy man. His name was Fancy Frank. He was a car dealer. He sold a lot of cars in a little small town in Michigan. Fancy Frank uh, caught him with his daughter. They weren't doing anything inappropriate. They were just sitting there. But he didn't like this poor kid hanging around his daughter. So he picked up a pipe and broke his jaw. Being a strong swimmer, Thad got in the river and he swam to Chicago. Chicago. Where he met another young woman and another wealthy man. The, mil- the wealthy man's name was John Scott. He began to hang around his daughter. And one day, Thad was invited out to John Scott's big old house. And this was Thad's observation out in the backyard, there was a very large assortment of barbecue equipment, similar to that of Laurie's father, Friendly Frank. John Scott had been slow cooking a fine-smelling brisket all day. A Kansas City brisket, he said. Now that sounds good. Thad wondered about this cultural pride in big barbecue operations when most of the nation managed with small webers. Do I hear it? amen for small webers? It starts with boys insisting on the best bicycle and moves on to cars, he thought. He talked at length with Emily's mother who was far too worried about crime despite living in a fortress. This seemed typical to people. The functional model and motto being, I must be completely safe. In the garden long, long ago, there were two people. It felt like they had to be completely safe on their own terms. People who, in the presence of God's provision, wanted a different barbecue pit. The same spirit that tries to push us into its mold was operative on the day of humanity's fall. And in trying to be something God never intended them to be. They sunk below the privilege of their true humanity. And a picture of brokenness entered the story. But God never left the story. When you continue to read in chapter 3, you begin to realize two things about God. How he responded to this rebellion. How did God respond to our sin? He responded in, in two ways. And we, we've sung about this, about God's character this morning. We, we've read scripture about this already this morning. He responded on one hand with judgment. He said, because of this cursed is the ground because of this because of this because of this that this sinfulness in, in our lives it was met with god's judgment it was god saying this is not okay with me so often we're met by by human indifference we do this and nobody cares we do that and nobody cares he's a man you can get away with murder And we often get away with murder. And we have blood on our hands and we don't know what to do with it. But God is far too wonderful not to care. And so in response to our sinfulness, there is a word of judgment. From a good and a holy God. And God said, this is not okay. And quite often this is the moment when we begin to respond to God in a life-giving way when somewhere in our life we run into a moment where we just sense deep down, this is not okay. This is not, this is not why I'm here. This is not who I am. This is not what I'm, what I'm here for. This is not all right. Judgment is a moment of grace. A hard-edged, tough moment of grace and God met him with that but he also met them with tremendous mercy tremendous mercy and as the story is told it's threefold there is a prophecy there is a prophecy of that serpent being crushed by the one to come christians have almost always interpreted this as a picture as a picture, as a picture of the coming one. There was also this beautiful picture of the covering that God gave them. They were naked, and they grabbed the first thing they could find, and it was not sufficient, so they were shaking around with leaves on. Kind of show up for the party with the wrong stuff on, right? So God tenderly closed them. He almost had this picture of of little babies And a mama coming in there and making sure they're protected, making sure they're covered. God clothed them in his mercy. And the final thing he did, and and this is sort of funky. You got chapter 3 down in verse 24. It says, so he drove the man out and east of the garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, this is sort of a Star Wars moment in in Genesis. You have this, I wonder if it made noise. I mean, Steven Spielberg should do this. He should work on Genesis 3. You have this this angelic host with a flaming sword to guard this garden so they don't come in and live eternally in this compromised moment. This sounds like pure judgment, but this is pure judgment mercy remember what I said about poetry don't miss the images God had a couple of options this moment he could have shut them out or he could have protected the entrance I don't know if you've noticed but things have changed a lot in downtown Wake over the past few months we got a little startup up business next door you've heard about them Everywhere I go, you know, we we went to Disney World. I, 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 full confession: our family went to Disney World. We were standing in line to get Cinderella's autograph. <laughs> why not? You know, I mean, why? I'm a grown man, <laughs> but I have a young daughter, so we were standing there for Cinderella's autograph, and we were meeting Cinderella. And Cinderella said, "Where are you from?" And we said, "We are from the magical land of Waco." And she said, do you know Chip and Joe? (laughs) Man, that's Cinderella. And I said, man, Cinderella, we're their next-door neighbors. What are you talking about? And having them as next-door neighbors is fun and it's exciting. It's a new thing every day, and it's also a challenge. One of our challenges early was kind of how we deal with parking situations. And we thought, hey, we we'll kind of, we've we got great people in building and grounds, for finance. We'll just kind of deal with it, kinda of as it goes. We'll figure it out. We'll keep an open flow of communication. And and for you know, about five minutes, that was okay. We had a couple of people trickling in, and then whoo! The nation of of middle-aged, middle class women descended on food. <laughs> <laughs> And they came with their dogs, and they came with their cousins, and they go, whoo. And so they said, we got to do something about this, because we have angry parents coming into the kindergarten, because they can't find a place to park. We have a funeral and a wedding, and where are we going to go? Because we got all these people from Tulsa and Missouri coming in with dogs and their cousins, and what are we going to do? So you, two options, two options, right? You shut them off. You tow them off. You get tough. And that leaves a great impression on both the kingdom of God and the city of (laughs) Wake. Or, here was a second option. You provide what you can at a modest cost (laughs) to pay for people who can stand there and say, Welcome, you can park here. You can either guard an entrance or you can close it. I just wish we had flaming swords. It'd be so cool. It'd be so neat. You wouldn't need a little vest if you had a flaming sword. But in this story, this, this is a great piece of this story that you don't need to miss because it's weird. This is a great piece of this story is that God had a couple of options to shut them off or to guard the entrance. And friends, God wanted to guard the entrance because he wanted us back in in the cool of the day with him. But he wanted us back in on his terms because he, as the author of life, is the only one who really knows how it's supposed to work. So, an old commentary, Bronman commentary, Francisco's commentary. I'm an old Baptist nerd. I have both uh, the revised and the unrevised version. I do. Some of y'all know what that means and appreciate that. Well, this is the revised one there. And there's a paragraph in there that I think is amazing. It says, How mistaken are those people who think in Christianity God's principal purpose is to provide eternal life? Adam could have had it simply by being left on his own in the garden. The thrust of Scripture is that God will not permit man to live forever until He has enabled him to become a good steward of his existence. In Christ, we are the new creatures whom He empowers to live the life purposed by God. Not in perfection while in this body, but moving toward that goal when the stubborn flesh will be glorified in the final resurrection. That'll preach. God wants us to experience eternal life with Him, but He wants us to experience life that is, the Scripture says, really life. Ernest Hemingway once famously said, Are you living or just alive? It's a great question. And I think he tried hard to answer that. And I think for most of his life, maybe all of it, he answered it very poorly. He tried his hardest to live. Until he ran out of all the options but one. And he didn't live with that one. You read his later novels like Island in the Streams. When he starts to romanticize suicide. And you know he hasn't learned how to be really alive. But that doesn't mean his question is not so powerful. Are you living? Or just alive? You see they could have lived forever forever. But God said, I don't, want you, I don't want you just to be alive. I want you to be really living with me. I don't want you to have life on my terms. And I want you to experience it uh, through grace, through faith, through mercy. I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And May we'll talk about this all the way through. But from here in this early part of the Bible, the rest of the Scripture all the way to the end is a picture of what God does to repair what we have done and continue to do to bring us to Himself and to give us the life that is really living. All the way to the end. And then at the very end, I mean the very end of the Bible on the last page right before biblical backgrounds, a survey of each book last page of the Bible, chapter 22, we read this. And he showed me a river of water, of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there was no longer any curse And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and there shall not need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and forever. The flaming sword was there to keep us out as autonomous selves, but the door is open to the children of God who come in the name of the Lord there we find life life that is really living when he is the center when he is the light i'm a film historian One of the greatest films in American history, right up there with Citizen Kane, is Goonies. (laughs) Do you remember Goonies? Who is your favorite Goonie? Chunk. Chunk was my favorite Goonie. He taught us all the truffle shuffle. It's still one of my favorite dance moves. (laughs) Chunk was played by a fat little kid named Jeff Cohen who grew up to be a sleek, strong attorney. Powerful, bright attorney. He deals with clients that are in the entertainment business. He helps them get the best deals. He's recently written a book, and in that book, he said, success, success is life on your own terms. Man, I love Chunk. And if I wanted to deal in the entertainment business, I'd probably call Jeff Cohen. But theologically, that's bankrupt. But we keep trying it over and over again. Life on your own terms. How do you become alive? You start living on someone else's terms. Accepting the provision with gratitude and trusting his strength to face the prohibitions knowing that he loves you and is the giver of all good and perfect things oh God help us you created us for life and we are content so often to live below it we pray through your spirit's help that you will now make us human. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together a song of commitment. If you have a public commitment to make, reflecting something that you have done privately in your heart, we pray that you come now for your good and for the glory of God. David, would you lead us?